Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. We are your co-hosts. Today, we are so excited to welcome Carrie Scarda to the podcast, who is joining us remotely. Carrie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Today, Carrie is here to talk about the benefits of quiet and stillness, and also what we believe as Latter-day Saints and followers of Jesus Christ about making time for quiet and stillness. As a quick introduction, Carrie is a psychologist and presenter who provides both individual therapy and group therapy specifically for women. Her current professional interests include trauma recovery and the practice of mindfulness. Carrie recently co-authored the book, The Power of Stillness, Mindful Living for Latter-day Saints, and she has been studying and practicing mindfulness and formal meditation for more than 10 years. She is married. She has two young children. She lives in Salt Lake City, and we just feel really lucky to have Carrie with us to discuss this subject today, to have her expertise and experience. So Carrie, thanks again for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Well, Carrie, to begin with, I feel like when people start talking about this concept of being still, there's a bit of a buzzword that's attached to that. And we hear a lot the word mindfulness. We would just love for you to tell us a little bit more what mindfulness means. That is a great question. So very simply, mindfulness means being aware in a compassionate way. The simplest definition is just compassionate awareness. And if we're going to flesh that idea out a little bit more, it's being compassionately aware of what's happening right here and now. So it's in the present. So a really great example of this is the story of Jesus Christ, where he's healing the woman who reaches out and touches his garment. So Christ is walking with a crowd of people to save a young girl who's ill. And in the midst of that crowd, a woman reaches out and touches his garment. And he is so present in the moment. He's not thinking about the future. He's not thinking about the past, but he's aware of this ill woman on the side of the street touching him. And he stops and he asks questions. So this is an example of Christ being present in the moment in a compassionate way right here and now, where he's able to see novelty. He's able to pause and ask questions. And he's not driven by the pressures of those around him or the future or the past. So this is an example of mindfulness in Christ's life. I love that example. And I haven't really heard it defined in quite that way. So thank you for clarifying that. We're also very interested to know as we begin this discussion, what led you to this path of study and practice of mindfulness and how it's influenced your life? I started to get interested in mindfulness when I was going through a divorce, actually. And I recognize now it was a spiritual prompting, although at the time I probably wouldn't have framed it that way. But I felt interested in meditation and mindfulness, which was an entirely new world to me. That wasn't something I was at all familiar with. And as I started studying that and getting into that, I realized how powerful those practices and ideas were in strengthening my relationship with Christ, in improving the quality of my prayer, and improving my religious practices in general. It took years for me to understand how mindfulness and meditation could improve my religious practices as a member of the church, but that's how it started, was in the midst of that divorce. Well, Carrie, I hope our listeners can recognize that something so seemingly simple can really make such a big difference in their lives. The other thing I appreciate, Carrie, was 
you said, although you didn't recognize it in the moment, that it was something you really felt guided to as you look back, that it was like, you're going through a hard thing and this is something that can help you. And I think what I love too is it wasn't something separate from your spiritual practices. It was something that kind of enhanced them or helped you connect, like you said, better with these relationships that you already had with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And so I think that a lot of people hear mindfulness or they hear about this concept and um, that you've defined so well, and they think of it as just a trend that some people are really into. So I guess the question is, and you've sort of already answered this, but is mindfulness something we believe in as Latter-day Saints? And what does it have to do with our belief in the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Oh, such a great question. So first of all, mindfulness is not a religion. It's a skill. Although a lot of world religions emphasize the value of being present in a compassionate way, especially in the context of our spiritual lives. But we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints may use different language to describe this skill. But I think the concept of being still and being intentionally present is all throughout Christ's life. And certainly as members of Christ's church, we're trying to emulate him. So when we're trying to quiet our minds and bodies so that we can listen to the promptings of the Holy Ghost, that's a mindfulness practice. When we make an effort to be more present and less distracted during the sacrament or when we're in a temple session, that's practicing mindfulness. Or when we're gently focused and compassionately listening to the sister that we're ministering to, that's practicing mindfulness. We wouldn't use the term practicing mindfulness to describe those moments, but that's essentially what we're doing. We're trying to be present in a compassionate, non-judgmental way. Also, as we're looking at the restoration of the gospel, we have these two great images from the early days of the restoration. The first image is that of the beehive. So our pioneer ancestors who settled Utah chose the beehive as an emblem of their community, and that represents values like hard work and cooperation. And to me, the beehive symbolizes the doing of the gospel, the things that are on that to-do list. But then we have this second image, and the second image is of the sacred grove. So when I say sacred grove, there's probably a picture that comes to all of our minds of Joseph kneeling in prayer in a quiet grove of trees, having this intimate conversation with God. And that sacred grove image reminds me of how important it is to create sacred spaces in our own lives to get quiet and to commune with God. So we have the beehive and we have the sacred grove. And these two images are linked. We wouldn't have the beehive if we hadn't had that sacred grove. And I think it's also true that we can't sustain beehive doing if we don't have that foundation of sacred grove stillness. So carving out that sacred grove space for communing with God is a mindfulness practice. And the first vision, which is the epitome of sort of the restoration, embodies the importance of that for me. So if I don't carve that time out, the doing activities of the gospel become really hollow, and I can start to feel burned out by them rather than nourished by them. So I think we need the beehive and the sacred grove. We need that stillness time as well. I really love those two examples and they do work well together. And I appreciate you bringing those together. And Carrie, when you're defining mindfulness, you keep using the words non-judgmental, compassionate in being present. So I'm just wondering, is that something that's inward? Is it outward? Is it both? You know, are we being compassionate and non-judgmental to ourselves or is it mostly just to the people that are in that situation? Yeah. So the idea here is that we're being aware. 
So we're aware of what's unfolding in the present moment in our bodies, what's going on around us, what's going on in our relationships. I would add, including spiritual promptings, what we're noticing through the influence of the Holy Ghost. And when we're aware with this compassion, then we see things that we didn't otherwise see. So we may be able to see things in our relationships or in ourselves that we wouldn't otherwise see, but we bring a compassion to all of that we are becoming aware of. Now, defining mindfulness like this is sort of like defining charity. We can do charitable acts like show up with a casserole or brownies, but that's not really what charity is. Charity is something we want to embody. So it's not just a list of things to do. It's a way of being in the world. And mindfulness can mean I'm going to stop and pay more attention. But it's also a way of being in the world. It's being in this state of compassion and presence. It's more than just something you would check off of a to-do list. Thank you. That's really clear to me now. I really appreciate that, that it's a way of being. And that comparison to charity really just made that click for me. So thank you. That was a perfect comparison. And I think just a great thing for us to establish throughout the discussion today, that we're not adding one more thing that we need to do as Latter-day Saints. But it's like you said, charity is not just checking things off a list and neither is mindfulness. I appreciated that. And I like that you've already given examples of how the Savior practiced this in his life and embodied it. I'm curious to what our church leaders, our modern day church leaders have said about stillness and mindfulness, because I think sometimes there are nuggets tucked away in messages about this. And until we look at it with a lens of mindfulness, stillness, it's like, oh, this is something that we believe. This is something that our church leaders are talking about that we sometimes don't process as that. Oh, absolutely. It's fascinating because once you start looking through this lens, you see mindfulness all over the scriptures and in contemporary talks and things as well. But before we go into that, let me just take a second and differentiate between mindfulness and meditation. So mindfulness, like we talked about, is a way of being. And meditation, on the other hand, is a concentrated time that is set aside to intentionally focus our attention on a spiritual purpose. So that's meditation. So prayer or taking the sacrament or time in the temple, all of these are examples of meditation. It's time set aside to focus on a spiritual purpose. So meditation is kind of like going to the gym for spirituality. We don't go to the gym because we want to lift weights and run on the treadmill the rest of our lives. We go to the gym so that when we're carrying our groceries up the stairs or when we're chasing kids, we have the muscle strength to be able to do those things in our real lives. So it's similar with meditation. When we meditate, we're spiritually preparing ourselves so that we can go out into the real world and be more mindful. We see this with Christ all the time. His disciples say that he went out into the wilderness often to pray and to commune with God. This is an example of Christ meditating, where he goes into nature alone and has time praying with God. And I think that his meditation habits strengthened his capacity to be present and compassionate, like when the woman touched the edge of his garment. I think he found meditation to be so important, in fact, that his last parting gift to his disciples was to give them a meditation practice or the sacrament, which we still do every week. And I think he did that because he knew from his own experience that having habits of meditation would make us spiritually strong. So every time we're taking the sacrament, we're practicing the meditation gift that Christ gave to us. 
But in more contemporary world, one of my favorite quotes is from David O. McKay. She says, I think we pay too little attention to the value of meditation, a principle of devotion. In our worship, there are two elements. One is spiritual communion arising from our own meditation. The other, instruction from others, particularly from those who have authority to guide and instruct us. Of the two, the more profitable introspection is the meditation. Meditation is the language of the soul. It is defined as a form of private devotion or spiritual exercise consisting in deep, continued reflection on some religious theme. Meditation is a form of prayer. Uh, End quote there. But what I love about this quote is that President McKay is telling us that the most profitable instruction that we have will come from personal meditation. And I think that's interesting. When I read that, I thought, oh, how many hours a week am I spending in meditation compared to how many hours a week am I spending listening to teachers present information to me or reading talks or doing something where someone is telling me something. And President McKay is telling us that of the two forms of learning, meditation is actually the more profitable one. So that's one of my favorite quotes about meditation. I really love this thought because it just makes me think of the emphasis that we're seeing and hearing from President Nelson on strengthening our ability to receive personal revelation. And that's what that sounds like to me. Absolutely. Like you said, is these introspective moments or or setting aside quiet or figuring out how it is that the spirit speaks to us and that that is vital to our spiritual well-being now more than ever. Yeah. I don't think that we could do the busy beehive work of the gospel unless we're accepting God's invitation into these stillness moments. That's perfect. Carrie, you've shared with us how mindfulness has influenced your life and what it's done for you. And you've mentioned a few benefits that it can have for us, especially connected to our spirituality. But we would love to know what are some of the other benefits that our listeners should be aware of that come from this practice of mindfulness? So I think one of the benefits that I've noticed when I really focus my intention on being present in the moment is I feel less rushed. That doesn't mean I have less going on in the day. I don't feel as burdened by the busyness somehow. So the analogy that I can use here is if you've ever tried to teach a small child to float in the water, they will thrash around. They're like, they don't trust the water and they'll thrash around and then they'll sink. But if they can learn to relax, trust the water and just be there, they float. The water's the same, but they float on it instead of feeling drowning in it. And when I'm able to be mindful in the moment, when I'm able to just be really present in this moment, I don't feel so much like I'm drowning in my to-do list. I feel this sense of being buoyant or being able to float on top of the water. So that's one of the benefits for me is that practicing meditation allows me to be more present and less drowning feeling in my everyday life. In the same circumstances, those don't change. In the same circumstances, another way that mindfulness has helped me in my life, especially my religious life even, is I'm more patient in the gap between answers to prayers. For example, when we're taking the sacrament, the sacrament is being blessed and then it's being passed and we have to wait. Other people are getting the sacrament when we're not. We have to wait in between getting the sacrament bread and the sacrament water. There's this gap in the sacrament where we have to just wait. And when I was little, I would fill that gap by 
studying the program or look at the hymn book. Now that I'm older, that gap is really precious time. It's this quiet, still time where I can just be present with God. That is mindfulness. And I've been able to see how gaps in my personal revelation where I'm waiting for an answer or I haven't received the knowledge that I need. I don't see that as a time to be bored or frustrated or distracted in the way that I perhaps used to before I was studying mindfulness. I see that as this quiet, still time as I'm waiting for the answers to come, as I'm waiting for the sacrament to come to me. So I'm less rushed or frustrated by those gaps in prayer or gaps in not understanding something. So that's another way that mindfulness has helped me. And then the third one that I'll mention, there's so many, there's so many ways I could go on forever. But the last one I will mention is that I'm less offended. The Buddhists tell this great story about these monks who are up in a monastery. And there's this one monk who is just getting on everyone else's nerves. And this monk finally gets upset and leaves. All the other monks are like, woohoo, he's out of our way. Then the head monk goes and brings him back. And the other monks are like, why did you bring him back? We finally got rid of him and we can be in peace now, but you brought him back? And this very wise monk said, he is the yeast to our bread. In other words, his presence is what allows us to grow. And I think mindfulness has allowed me to be more tolerant and less judgmental of those yeasty people in my life, that I can be patient with that and use it as an opportunity for me to become closer to my Savior and more like him rather than feel only offended and hurt. So that's a third way that I think mindfulness has impacted me. And let's be honest, you will probably have the experience of being offended or the opportunity to be offended. And having something in place to help you be more resilient to that helps me feel more empowered in those moments. Well, I think you were speaking specifically about rushing to fill the gap or needing to fill the gap in seeking answers to prayer. But I think that's something that we also face every day this desire to fill, for me anyway, to fill every quiet moment with productivity, like you said, with mm. distraction, like you said, in the sacrament, it's like, what can I distract myself with? Instead of learning to be comfortable with, okay, I don't have anything right now. I'm not going to rush to fill this gap and let there be those moments when, hearkening back to what David O. McKay said, I can be taught, I can be nourished, I can be strengthened. That was something I thought of and something I think I could do differently. And we talk a lot about that, not rushing to our phones or not rushing to entertainment or other distractions, but that was something I thought of. Oh, I like that. I'm going to steal that and use that in the future. That's so good. (laughs) So good. So as we move forward in this conversation, we want to now narrow in on, okay, so what does this actually look like for real Latter-day Saint women? And what are the obstacles? Because there are obviously obstacles here, as we've hinted at and indicated. So we're going to talk about finding time and practicing meditation with the obstacles that we have, but then also things like shame and guilt that get in the way of us allowing ourselves to take the time to do this instead of to be busy bees. So we know Latter-day Saint women, as most women are, are very busy. They're juggling many things. We're multitasking. We have things, family, home, employment, 
individual spiritual practices, callings, we're trying to take care of ourselves and our bodies and our wellness and our relationships, and the list just goes on and on. And we want to avoid the idea that we're suggesting that women add one more thing to their to-do list. So the question is, is it truly possible for a normal <laughs> Latter-day Saint woman to actually find the time to meditate, if we're talking about meditation specifically? And what are some practical suggestions for incorporating these practices into our lives? Oh, I can really relate to this because I have wrestled with those questions myself so many times. But let's think about how we're even phrasing the question for a second. So we're phrasing the question is, okay, here's this stillness thing that I also have to fit on my long to-do list and I'm already burning out. So how can I get motivated to do another thing on the list? That's kind of how the question gets phrased. And I relate to that. But let's pause for a second here. And instead of framing this as another thing to do, let's frame this as an opportunity to stop doing. So let's just sit with that for a second. How does it feel in your body when I tell you that you can stop? And in fact, I think God is extending invitations frequently, inviting us to just stop and be with him. Sacrament is a time to just stop. Prayer can be a time to pause. The temple is a time to pause. Sitting in your car with your eyes closed, listening to an inspiring hymn is a time to pause. We are being invited to jump off of the to-do list and just be with God for a moment. So the first thing I would say is we can frame these invitations not as another thing to do, but as an opportunity to not do and be with God. There was one day where I had this very question in mind, and I made a whole list of all those to-do list items that are things we're supposed to be doing as members of the church. And I sat down to God and I was like, okay, I have only one hour. So which of all these things do you want me to do? Because I only have an hour. So what do you want? And it was really interesting as I sat there with that question, the feeling that I had was all of those are good things. But what I really want is you to just sit with me. And that really struck me that Heavenly Father was more concerned with the relationship with me than he was about any of those things on my to-do list. So that taught me that he's inviting us to be with him and to be in communion with him. With that as the foundation, my first thought here is that taking that time to pause allows us to be better at discerning the priorities for the day. So there's a story of Jesus at the height of his ministry. He's scheduled to teach in Capernaum in the morning. And overnight, he goes off by himself to pray. And the next morning, the disciples, they can't find him. And so they're looking all over for him. They finally find him and they're like, what are you doing? The crowds have gathered. Let's go teach the people over here. And Christ says, we're not going to teach in Capernaum today. We have to go to another place. And it's interesting to me that Christ doesn't prioritize the crowds or the expectations or even his righteous disciples' expectations for him. What he prioritizes is God's direction to him, which he gains by spending private time alone with God. So he doesn't preach in Capernaum that day. He goes somewhere else. So what that teaches me is that spending a little bit of time with God first allows me to be first of all, nurtured, and also guided. 
so that what I do say yes to really is in alignment with what God would have me do. And then I can feel confident that he will help me have the strength and energy to fulfill those priorities. I like that in this example that you share of the Savior, that there was a plan. The disciples are like, but we're going here and these people have expectations and we have expectations. And I think sometimes when we feel the need, like I need to step away. And like you said, I just need to sit with God. We sometimes feel the need to get permission from someone else. Is that okay? Is everyone okay with me stepping back for a minute to refill the reservoir that is absolutely necessary for you to continue serving and looking outward? And I like that you gave us some instruction there. Just look to God. What is the guidance that God is giving you? And trust that and don't worry so much about, well, I don't have permission from these other people in my life to do this. I feel that myself. I think seeing that Christ did this, that he was not being directed by, as you say, his disciples' expectations or the crowd's expectations, but that he was prioritizing his energy based on these communion experiences with God. That if we're going to be like Christ, this is what we need to be doing. We do need to be spending this time individually in quiet moments of prayer with our Heavenly Father. And that may not look like all night the way Christ does in this example of Capernaum. That may look like five or 10 minutes of just sitting with our to-do list and asking God, which of these are the priority? It doesn't have to be super grand. It can be very integrated into our regular lives. But yeah, I agree. Christ models this for us and we can feel like we have full permission to follow his example. So another thought that comes to mind is that one of the consequences of being so focused on a to-do list is that you lose touch with the actual moment as it's unfolding, which means that other people can become interruptions rather than actual people. And even inspiration can feel like an interruption. We may not even have space in our minds to feel inspiration because we're so focused on our to-do list that inspiration is an interruption even. So here's another example from the life of the Savior. Do you remember the moment where he's teaching in a house and there are like a lot of people there? It's a crowded house and everyone's listening to him. He's in his group. This is a good sermon that's happening. And then all of a sudden, some of the students, so to speak, they literally raise the roof of the house and lower this ill man into the middle of the room, like right in front of Jesus. Now, if Christ had been so focused on getting the lesson taught, he could easily have seen this as a giant interruption. Like, this is not my plan. You are in the way. I'm teaching a fantastic sermon here. Why are you interrupting it? But he's not. He's so present with compassion and so mindful. He's in such a state of mind that he can see this as an opportunity. And I propose that the reason he could be so flexibly present in the moment was because he had had regular time with God being nourished by his father and being connected to him. So if we are going to be able to flexibly meet the interruptions and demands of our schedule with that same kind of compassion and gentleness, then first we need to have that time spent communing with our heavenly father. And the reality is, as a therapist, as a psychologist, what I have seen is that if we don't stop and take that time, our bodies eventually will make us stop. Like we will end up with physical symptoms that force us to slow down. So we can either spend an hour a week building in some breathing space, or we can end up spending an hour a week at the doctor's office or Googling symptoms of our ailments. 
So if we don't learn how to do this, our bodies will eventually push us to do it. So we may as well take agency over it at the beginning. Well, Carrie, as you were mentioning distractions, I loved that story about Christ teaching the sermon and having this major distraction that he just changed because he had that mindset. He could just kind of change course. But what would you say to someone like me who, you know, I have little kids, I get distracted, but also there are times that I seek distraction. I am so in the habit, It's and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, just pulling out my phone or I'll watch TV shows even while I'm doing the dishes or getting ready in the morning. You know, I'm just always kind of seeking that distraction. And I think part of it is I like to have something else going on. Like, I feel like I like that to be this fake busy, but I'm just wondering how I can give myself permission to not distract myself? Oh, it's such a good question. And part of it may not be so much permission as just it becomes a habit almost that we're so used to having noise or if there's a quiet moment, like pull out our phones and check something on our screens, or it's almost becomes more of a habit. And as we become aware of that, we can start to be more curious about why am I turning to this in the moment? What is it I am distracting myself from? Is it loneliness? Is it boredom? Is it difficult for me to tolerate quiet? Then there may be consequences to that that we're not recognizing when we just jump right into that. So I would encourage you and those who may find yourself in that position to just lean into those moments with more curiosity. When you find yourself reaching for the phone, or in my case, it's reaching for the sugar to distract myself from whatever I'm feeling, what is it that I'm feeling that I want to distract myself from? What is it that I'm experiencing right now that feels so intolerable that I can't just be with it and be curious about that? And then insights can come from that curiosity. Thank you. I really like that. So another kind of practical question, Carrie, I think I, we want to be sure to address is that in these moments of built-in quiet and meditation, whether that's the sacrament or attending the temple or prayer, what happens when we fall asleep? I just think sometimes I am so exhausted. This prayer is meaningless. Like I'm not even going to attempt to pray because I'll mumble a few words and then fall asleep. So maybe also not feeling guilty when you are exhausted and sleepy, but how do you work through that or see it for what it is? This is a good question and it leads to a broader question. A lot of people, when they start meditating, there's this sense of, oh, I'm just not good at that. I fall asleep or my mind wanders, I can't stay focused long enough, or my environment is such that I can't be quiet. I have kids calling my name every three seconds. How am I supposed to carve out time for this? My response to that is that it's not about being in some picture-perfect, Pinterest-worthy moment. That's not what it's about. It's about being present with whatever is actually happening. Noticing that you're tired is being present in that fatigue. Noticing that there are kids demanding your attention, notice that. If that's what's unfolding in the moment, then be in that moment. None of that is a problem that needs to be solved. All you're doing is just being aware of that. We can be present with whatever is coming up. The goal is not to create some sort of forced experience. The goal is just to be present with the reality that's unfolding in front of you. I think the, the sacred grove, again, going back to that image, is a really good example of this. Joseph was aware of his question. He was aware of darkness. He was aware of, of intense thickness around him. He was also aware of light. He was aware of the intimacy of being known by name by God. 
he had to hold all of that. If he had said, what, there's darkness here? That's not what I came here for. That's not what I wanted. I'm out of here. He never would have gotten to the point of of seeing the light. So when we're meditating, we may even have darkness come up. We may have anxiety or boredom or frustration or irritation or questions or confusion. All of that might come up or just sleepiness. But the intention is to stay present with anything that comes up, not just the things we want to come up. Thank you. I just keep thinking again about how you said mindfulness is just a way of being. It's not something that we should try to necessarily have to do. It's just a way of being. So I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie, as we're talking about incorporating greater stillness and mindfulness in our busy lives and our distracted lives, there are some contradictory ideas that have come up. You even mentioned at the beginning, there's this idea of a beehive and there's this idea of the sacred growth. And both of those are our realities. And we also read in the scriptures, not turn faster than we have strength and to be still. But then we also read, be anxiously engaged in a good cause and to serve God with all of our heart, might, mind and strength. We're just wondering, how can we overcome these seemingly contradictory ideas and be okay with that? Yeah, that's a great question. How do we allow ourselves stillness and also be engaged in the work? And I would say that we must accept God's invitations into stillness with him, or we're not going to be able to stay engaged in the work. I was at a word council and they were talking about ministering and they were talking about how can we be more effective as ministers. And I was thinking about this idea of Christ communing with God before engaging in his own ministry. And that we need to be nourished by God and spend time in stillness with God in order to be able to be effective in our ministry. I was thinking about that idea and I tried to say it, but the way it was received was, oh, yeah, we need to pray to know how to help our ministers, but we need to pray first. And I was like, yeah, but that makes it sound like this thing that we need to do on our to-do list. You pray, then you go into and visit your ministering person. And I was like, it's not really like that. It's more like we need to be nourished by God and take time to allow him to fill us up and be strengthened by his power and presence so that we can then go forward with that fullness and abundance and give it to those whom we minister to. So Oprah interviewed this woman who traveled really deep into tribal African communities, and she was speaking out against culturally sanctioned domestic violence. That's who Oprah was interviewing. So I have no doubt that this woman was getting pushback on her message. And not to mention that she was traveling in really rural, inconvenient places that were isolated and had a lot of hassles to them. So Oprah was asking her, how do you not lose your mind as you're giving this message to people who don't want to hear it, as you're traveling in these difficult environments? And I love the woman's response. She said, every morning she sits on the ground and meditates. And she reminds herself of her connection to the earth. Now, as Christians, I think we can take this even deeper. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to read out of John chapter 15. And I'm reading the NIV version here. Christ is talking about how he's divine. So thinking of this image of connecting through meditation. But Christ says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So when I'm feeling burned out, I think of this verse. If I'm not connected to Christ, 
I'm vulnerable to being burned, meaning burned out. And then he continues, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So in other words, if we're connected to Christ, if we start there, not only will we have the ability and the energy to do what we've been called to do, it will be literally like Christ is right there with us, doing it with us and even for us. Whatever you wish, it will be done for you. We will have so much energy, we'll almost feel like he's doing it for us. And then he goes on, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So that's my favorite part. This connection, in essence, is love. God's love and Christ's love for me. And then Christ continues, now remain in my love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That as we connect with Christ, we feel that love. And out of that love is joy, complete joy. And as we're filled with that love and with that joy and with the strength of that, then we can go forward into our ministering, into our families, into our callings, and bring that love and joy that we're being filled with to those who we're serving. So in my mind, the beehive and the sacred grove, they're not at odds with each other. They create this rhythm. So a rhythm is made when you're alternating silence with sound, or in this case, when we're alternating stillness with busyness. We need both to create that rhythm. And together, they create this joyful, loving music of the gospel. I love that so much. That's one of the best responses I've heard to help us hold both of those things in our hands. And I think of a prompting that I've had. I have a church calling that keeps me busy on Sunday and I'm attending meetings. I'm helping with things at church. And then I go home with this big to-do list of people that need to be contacted and things that need to be done and emails and phone calls and all of that. I'm kind of like, oh, I'll jump on it right now. I'll do it all today. And I've just had the feeling and I've also learned because I tried to do that and then just got utterly exhausted that it was like, no, I think it's time to just rest. And I think so many women can relate to that, whether that's church callings or other responsibilities that sometimes it's like, we just want to keep going. Like I can just keep going and just get a little bit more done and get a, a head start. When there's actually power in allowing rejuvenation and rest to fuel that fire for the rest of the week. Absolutely. It's so true. And in fact, there's research actually with therapists where they took a group of therapists and they had that group of therapists practice meditation on their own privately. And they took another group of therapists and they gave them some other random assignment to do on their own. And then they compared the client of those therapists. Now, to keep in mind, the therapists weren't doing any meditation with the clients. They were meditating on their own, by themselves, on their own, nothing to do with the clients. But they compared how the clients did in their progression on mental health symptoms like depression and anxiety. And the clients of the therapists who were meditating made statistically significant progress over the clients of those therapists who were not meditating. So this is some like scientific support. So think of as women, who are we therapists to in our everyday lives? Who is relying on us to help them? The people in our classes, the people in our families, our friends, the people in our neighborhoods, we have all these people relying on us. And this is some scientific evidence to support you in saying it's valid for me to take time to commune with God and meditate quietly because you will be better off if I do this. It's not a selfish thing. We benefit all of those within our sphere of influence when we take that time. And we've got evidence to prove it now. 
Carrie, I really love that you shared that because I'm imagining mothers, people in callings, people that are caretakers that are thinking, I have other people I have to take care of. I cannot take this time for myself. But I just love how you said we can serve better. We can love better. It gives us that greater capacity. And I just hope for our listeners, as it's doing for myself, I hope that can help them overcome feelings of shame or guilt that they have thinking, I'm selfish if I do that and take that time. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. I love that you framed it that way. That's beautiful. Carrie, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic discussion that I have learned so much from. I love when we learn from these short and brief teachings of Jesus Christ so much from his example, from his teachings. I love that. So thank you for highlighting those stories. As we wrap up, Carrie, is there anything more you'd like to share with the women of the church or the listeners of this podcast on this topic? Well, maybe I can end, maybe we can end with an image that I love to sit with when I'm in this space of wanting to spend time with my father and with the savior. Remember after Christ's resurrection, the disciples have gone back to Galilee and they're on the boat and they're fishing all night long. And in the morning, they see a man on the shore and it's the Savior, and he calls to them. And this is the great part where Peter like sees the Savior and like, jumps out of the boat, is like swimming. I just love Peter's instant desire to go to the Savior. And they're on the shore as the sun is just coming up. That's how I imagine it anyway. The Savior has built a fire, and he's made some sort of bread and fish. And his disciples come, and they gather around this fire. And this is where Christ asks Peter three times, lovest thou me? They have this conversation about Christ's love for him. And then I'm going to literally feed you and you're going to go and feed those around you. You're going to go and feed others. Quite literally, Christ is feeding them. So when I need to sit with my Savior for a moment is I will close my eyes and imagine myself being there around that fire, sitting next to my Savior, allowing him to feed me spiritually. And Sometimes I sit in that When my kids are screaming and yelling and fighting about homework and I'm in the middle of the kitchen and I will just close my eyes and go to that image and imagine the Savior just being with me and feeding me and being present with me in that moment. And I hope that the women who are listening will feel inspired by this discussion to find ways to practice being with the Savior and developing that faith and time to develop a relationship with him. I have been so grateful for learning about these ideas and how they strengthen my practices as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they strengthened my faith in the Savior and my gratitude for all of the principles of the Restoration that have been offered from Joseph Smith forward. And I hope that the listeners will feel encouraged and inspired to find ways to incorporate these ideas into their own spiritual and religious practices. Thank you so much, Carrie. I love hearing about these ideas from your professional perspective and from your personal perspective and as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, just like you said. I feel that I have a lot of ideas that I'm coming away with, and I hope our listeners have that same experience. So thank you, Carrie, for being with us today. Thank you, Shaylin, and thank you, Carly. What a pleasure to sit here with you today and talk about some of these fun, fun topics. Thank you, Carrie. We've really appreciated the imagery that you've left us with too. I'm leaving just wanting to float and to feel kind of the light I feel like and the love that you've described is available in our circumstances, not running away from our circumstances or hoping that our circumstances will change and 
be better, but that in our circumstances, in the midst of your crazy kitchen with the kids yelling and screaming yes. and fighting, that there is yes. peace that we can find. So thank you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. As a reminder, we have new episodes released every week, and we hope you'll continue to tune in and share these episodes with your friends and family members. We're so grateful to hear from so many of you. Please continue to share your feedback and reviews on Apple Podcast. You can email us at podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org with any suggestions for topics for guests. We also want to make sure our listeners are aware that the podcast is available just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. And it's also available on the church's website and available on the Gospel Library app and the Saints Channel mobile app. So just keep this in mind as you tune in, subscribe, and share these voices and stories of women of faith with your friends and family. Finally, we'd like to thank our wonderful editor, Kurt Dahl, and our producer, Matthew Mangum, and the many others who support this podcast. Until next week, I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.